Today's reading will be from the Gospel of John, starting chapter 12, verse 12 through 36. This is God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Sends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to pray before we look at God's word this morning. Lord, we ask again, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, make your word known. Sanctify the saints and grant illumination to those who do not yet believe. May you be glorified. Enable me to communicate your truth and the power of your spirit this day, we ask. Amen. Welcome, if 
you're visiting with us, um, we do not usually um, interrupt the exposition of whatever book we're working through for Palm Sunday. We happen to be currently going through the book of Acts. We have one chapter to go, which will make up two to three sermons. But with Easter next week, uh, we considered that... uh, a good year to do so, and this morning we parachute into John chapter 12, Um, that is the Apostle John's account of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, traditionally known as Palm Sunday. You know, one of the hallmarks of John's gospel is the resolute drive of Jesus towards his hour. That is, towards the hour of his glorification, that being the cross. That hour was always his determined objective. From the outset of his ministry, in John chapter 2, During the wedding of Cana, where the host embarrassingly ran out of wine, Jesus' mother approached him and said, they have no wine. To which Jesus replied, woman, which is to say ma'am, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That is to say, his hour would not be determined by anyone, including his earthly mother. She had no authority. And by the way, she has no authority to this day. She holds a very unique place in redemptive history. She has no authority. Later, his own brothers, unbelieving at the time, tried to convince him to push his agenda into the public eye and enter into the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 8, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In the same chapter, that is chapter 7 of John's account, verse 30, his enemies sought to take him, but yet no one laid a hand on him. Why? His hour was not yet. They tried it again in chapter 8 with the same results. And here, in the middle of our text, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right there in the middle of our text, verse 24. And that, in response to a group of Greeks at the time of Passover, who said to Philip, who went to Andrew, They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus, verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. During the middle of the 20th century um, in America, um, it was quite the fashion for John chapter 12, verse 21 to be posted somewhere in the, in the pulpit where the preacher could see it. Sir, we wish 
to see Jesus um, encouraged a whole generation of preachers to remember their primary task, and that is to preach Christ, the King of Kings. Hopefully, that's the desire of your heart this morning. Question, why are you here? Why are you here? Why do you come in here on any given Sunday? Hopefully, it's to see Christ through the living scriptures. Hopefully, that's the desire. Now, this morning, um, I want us to zero in on the king behind the palms. Okay? The king behind the palms. Earlier, we saw a glimpse of the king behind the psalms. The king behind the psalms. That king behind Psalm 22, 23, and 24 is the king behind the palms of John chapter 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So John's point this morning is to show us the kind of king who is ours. The kind of king, the kind of Christ who is ours, the Christ of the cross. And there are six features for us to observe this morning that come right out of the text. Didn't take any work to come up with this. They come right out of the text. The first, he's a humble king. He's a humble king, verses 12 to 19. Verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now John identifies two distinct multitudes that make up this great crowd. One group is composed of those who were traveling with Jesus, who witnessed the raising of Lazarus, four days dead, from the grave back in Bethany. You see that in verse 9, and again we'll see, we see that in verse 17. Now the other group is made up of, of pilgrims who had come into Jerusalem to purify themselves for the Passover. Chapter 11, verse 55. And here again we see in verse 12 of chapter 12. So you have two groups and here they are, joined together, in hand, palm branches, which were a symbol of strength and power. And date palms grew abundantly around Jerusalem, so they would not be too difficult to get hold of. Okay, but why palms? Well, the only place in Scripture we read about palms prescribed by God for use of God's people is in the law, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, where the Lord instructed that palms should be used at the Feast of Tabernacles. That is, to remember, and for, for a week they would stay in these booths or these huts, and they would remember the wilderness wanderings of Israel for 40 years, and they would look up to the stars, and they would remember, they would recall how God provided for them. Okay? But, but that's not the case here. 
eventually, palms would be used in other festive occasions. For instance, the time of the Maccabean Revolt, 167 BC, when the temple was rededicated after it was destroyed by one evil Antiochus Epiphanes, under Judas Maccabeus, the people raised palm branches in celebration of the rededication of the temple. And then later, under Simon Maccabeus, who drove out Syrian forces against Jerusalem in 141 BC. So this is taken on a habit of the people to raise these palm branches as a sign of strength and power. Nevertheless, in the book of Revelation... Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, what do we read? We read this, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus Christ, resurrected, glorified, clothed with white robes are his people with palm branches in their hands. The victor, the victorious one. Now, at this point in John chapter 12, however, they hail him as conquering hero. Having in their mind, the people have in their mind, make no mistake about it, a political governmental messiah. Hailing him as something he would never be. A political governmental Messiah. They shout Hosanna, applying, applying to Jesus the words of Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26, which means save now. Save now. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a Jewish idiom for welcome. Welcome. Save us now. Welcome in the Lord's name is what they're saying. And notice they hail him the king of Israel. Now look at it closely, verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. And again, the, 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 the king behind the palms is a king of humility. The first thing that is stressed here is that he is the people's king. He is your king. He comes to them, he comes from them, and he comes for them. Your king. He comes for their benefit. Seated on a donkey's colt. Not a stallion. Not a warrior charger to conquer. But he comes in humility ascending Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. He comes to bless, not oppress. This king. He comes to set people free, not to enslave. He comes in humility, riding on a borrowed donkey's colt, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is, friends, this is the Lord God of the universe. Second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God who condescended to take on human flesh and enter in, in time, within time and on time, on a donkey's colt. The one who presently sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That one. The only one. This is the king behind the palms. And the king 
behind the palms is the king behind the psalm, chapter 24, verse 7. Look at it. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. A thousand years before he came, that was written. So identifying here Jesus as king, that's another way of designating him as Messiah, the promised Messiah, the promised one who does not conquer his enemies through violence, but triumphs over his adversaries by way of suffering. A humble king. The king of glory. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who spoke the galaxies into existence, this one. And he rides in now and, and at this time receives the praises of the people. Remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus' Galilean ministry? He, he multiplies the loaves and the fishes and the Galilean mobs look at him and they start to connect the dots. This seems familiar. And the dots take the shape of a crown. He must be king because he's providing free food and health care. Let's take him and make him king. What did Jesus do? He went away. He did not come to be that kind of king. By the way, the social gospel is not the gospel. Here, he intentionally enters Jerusalem and now receives the praises of the people. This king comes in humility. So behind all the shouts, all the hosannas, all the palms, all the confusion, and crowds bearing witness of what had happened in, in Bethany's cemetery, the raising of Lazarus, behind all of the confusion... Pharisees are now throwing their hands up in despair and they're saying to one another, verse 19, look at it. You see that you are doing, you are not doing any good. Look, the world is gone after him. And this time they're right. <laughs> For once the Pharisees are correct. Because in the next verse, among those who would come to worship at the feast, that is Passover, they're not Israelites, not Jews that are being focused on here, but Gentiles, Greeks. The first fruits. The first fruits of those who would represent Gentile salvation. All nations, i.e. the world. That's our humble king. The king behind the palms is a king of humility. Next, notice, he's an accessible king. He's an accessible king. Verses 20 to 24. Notice verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus. The force of the language is, is continuous. They continued to ask, sir, 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 we wish, we beseech, we literally, we, we would like an interview with Jesus. 
We want to see Jesus. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, now, friends, now is the time for Jesus to declare his hour. His glorification is in reference to his death here, right here. Notice he, he compares his life to a grain of wheat. A grain of wheat left on the table remains a grain of wheat. Grain of wheat left on the threshing floor remains a grain of wheat. You take it and, and you throw it into the earth, it breaks open, it becomes a, a great crop. It manifests great fruit, but it must die. It must be broken. And in my death, says Jesus, I will bear much fruit. Not only Israelite fruit, okay, don't miss this, pay attention. Not only Israelite fruit, but Gentile fruit as well. Like these Greeks, these Greeks who are here to worship at the temple. These are Greeks. These are Gentiles here to worship at the Jewish temple. And friends, lest we forget, there was a great barrier for Gentile worship in that temple. There was a court of the Gentiles. And there was a wall that stood about four feet high. And there were placards along that wall for any Gentile to pass this barrier equals death. Count the cost. There's the Gentile court. There was a court for Jewish women. There was a court for Jewish men. And there was a court for Jewish priests. Divvied up. So there was a great wall of separation for those who were Gentiles. Jesus jumped down to verse 32. And I, I, if I am lifted up from the earth. Okay, now he, he just spoke about dying, wheat being thrown into the ground, dying and in, in multiplying. He says here in verse 32, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That, that does not mean just lift up the name of Jesus and everyone will come. No, to be lifted up means to be crucified. He's speaking about his death, the kind of death he would suffer. He would be lifted up. On a Roman cross. And notice, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That is not I will draw every single individual throughout the world without exception. It does not mean that. It means I will draw all without distinction. Not merely Jewish people, but all without distinction. My sheep, they hear my voice. They know my voice, and they what? Follow me. My sheep, my elect, all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And guess what? Unless he draws them, they never come. I will draw them. If I'm lifted up. Friends, people will not come to Christ on their own. People will not come to Christ on their own. He will draw them in his death to himself. Not, not to religion, not to a temple, not to a code of ethics, but he said, I will draw them to me, to myself. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. I will make them willing to come. I will transform their want to. 
Amen? Wasn't there a time you did not want to follow Christ? You did not want to come to church? You were a kid, a spoiled little brat in your mind. I don't want to go to church. I don't like hearing about Jesus. And here you are today wanting to be here. Children, let me say to you, if you roll your eyes, I'm serious, if you roll your eyes, the idea of going to church rather than saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus, I hope and I pray that God changes your want to. Because the more you push him off and the more you don't want him, the harder harder your heart becomes. And but by the grace of God and him drawing him, drawing you to himself, you only become more calloused. Pray that doesn't happen to you. Amen? And if, if, if look, honestly, kids, if mom and dad says, let's get ready for church, you go, I hate church. If that's you, start praying to the Lord that will change your heart. Okay? Because guess what? To think like that is actually a very natural thing for our sin nature. So you're very much like your parents and like your pastor, okay? You're very much like your pastor. You're very much like your parents. So if that's how you feel about church and about Christ, ask the Lord, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart that I want more of you. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Amen? Amen. Children on the left and the right and in the middle. Amen. 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 Because your pastor used to be one who didn't want to go to church. The pastor is one who used to say, never used to say, sir, show me Jesus. I want to see Jesus. But now I long to see him because of his drawing. Amen. It's all grace. Never forget it. Oh, he's an accessible king. Verses 20 to 20. For if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. All kinds of people from all kinds of places. Jesus is the accessible king. He does not say here that I am the barrier, I am the fence. He doesn't even say I am the window. In John 10, he says what? I am the door. I am the door. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through me. I will draw all without distinction. Has he drawn you? Is he drawing you? If he's drawing you, then come. Come. Okay, now here at this point in, in, in the narrative, um, the balloon um, has deflated. Uh, the wind has gone out of the sails, so to speak. Um, all of the political hopes of this fickle mob here is about to be put to death. He's just talking about dying their political hopes, they, they wanted a political messiah, a political king. That's the kind of king they were looking for, not one to redeem them from their sinful condition, doomed for hell. Jesus would not be that kind of king. He could not be that kind of king, for that would violate the scripture. The promises of this king. Friends, this is why so many people today reject Jesus Christ. He does not fit their framework, the kind of Lord that they insist he be. You get what I'm saying? That's our natural inclination. I say he 
is like this, and he better be like that, or I'll have nothing to do with him. Danger. Danger. So this humble king is an accessible king. Thirdly, he's also a costly king. He's a costly king. Verses 25 and 26. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So loving one's life, doing everything possible to preserve and to coddle and to cushion and sustain my little life here and now to indulge it, making our own life and preservation of this life in this life, that becomes our worship. That's our worship. To save my life, my best life now, to be all that I can be. And Jesus said that creates a real risk. In loving it, you lose it because if you love it and yourself more than you do your creator, that's idolatry. Look what Jesus said in Mark eight thirty five: Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Which means, context, Faith in Jesus Christ divides. Jesus said, um, I did not come to earth to bring peace, but a sword to divide a, a father from a son. Because the father doesn't believe, and let's say the son does believe, that causes division. And if the, if the son says, I don't like this division, I don't like this feeling, I'll deny Christ and remain with daddy. Unwilling to lose for the sake, the gain of Christ. So in other words, their top priority in life is not, those who follow Christ, is not preserving themselves in the mental, social, financial protection chamber that this life provides. Those who follow Christ are willing to give up that kind of preservation in a worshipable sense. I'm not talking about good stewardship. I'm talking about this is my focus. This is my line in life. Preservation of self and all that I have. And then it becomes idolatry and we forsake Christ. Eventually deny him. Deny me before the Father. Or deny me before man and I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. That's the danger. That's why he's, a co he's costly. Notice the contrast in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what matters to them is the presence of Christ, their king, their, their savior. Nothing matters more than the presence of Jesus in their lives and the honor of the Father. Rather than the approval and applause of men. That's the idea. If you're after the approval of man, a pat on the back, the applause of this world, to be a little Kardashian or whatever, 
you're on the wrong path, man. But those who, like Paul, say, I have been bought with a price, brought by the drawing of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, a great price. And then you have a body made up of home, homemakers, uh, military people, uh, dental assistants, uh, lawyers, whatever. We're one together in Christ. That's the beauty. And you'll receive the honor of the Father. So here we have a humble king. We have an accessible king. We, we see a very costly king behind the palms. And notice next, a troubled king. A troubled king. Verses 27 and 28. Notice, my, my soul is now troubled. I've become deeply troubled. Okay, friends, this, this is the one who said, I and the Father are one. Deity in human flesh, troubled? Troubled. My soul, that, that means my psyche, my very person has been thrown into turmoil. That's what he's saying. My psyche, my, my soul, all that I am, I'm troubled. This is internal disturbance. It means to stir up or to agitate. That's the condition of my soul right here, right now. You see, friends, Passover is unfolding. This is his final week. And his literal hour is just days away. And now his soul is troubled. He's a troubled king. You know, John, he does not record in his account Jesus and the agony he suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't record it for us as the other gospel writers, but here we have a condensed version of the same kind of anguish that will be expressed there in the dark of night. His soul, trouble. What's the cause of his trouble? I mean, was it the bruising of his heel by the serpent as prophesied in Genesis 3, verse 15? Was it the nails he would suffer in his hands and his feet, the shredding of his flesh when he was flogged, or death itself? Well, let me say this. You cannot explain the horrors of death here for Christ apart from the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation. That is God putting on his son the sins of his people. It's Isaiah 53, verse 12. He himself bore the sins of many. This is why he's troubled. Deeply troubled. Because on the cross, he, he, he would incur not only the physical suffering that would lead to his death, but the very judgment of God on the sin, sin and guilt of men. People like us. Troubled. A sinless substitute comes to bear the damnation of God, the innocent one, the spotless one, and thereby provides propitiation, which means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin and sinners. He's troubled. Deeply. The prospect of being made a, a curse on the cross 
Look at Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him and only in him. Only in him. There aren't many roads to God. Not all temples point to heaven, my friends. Amen? Christ alone. Knowing he would face it all along the way, he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem when he was in Galilee. Well, here he is. What's the problem? That's the problem. That's the trouble. His hour has arrived. It's days away. Literally, is just days away. And he will become the very curse. Cursed by God on the cross. Forsaken by God. Verse 27. So, should he ask the Father to spare him now? Verse 27b. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is why I came. So he doesn't cry out, Lord, save me from this hour. No, Father, verse 28, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Speaking of Christ's trouble, heart, soul, his psyche, one commentator writes this. And this is in context to the Garden of Gethsemane, but this is the same kind of trouble. Though his holy nature shrank from being made sin, it only marked his perfections to ask that such a cup might pass from him. Isn't that beautiful? Holy perfection in a human body. Nevertheless, he bowed without a second thought to the Father's will, saying, but for this purpose I came to this hour. You know what that tells us? This king, this Christ, your Lord, your, your Savior, when he was on this earth, was not some emotionless robot. You see this? Therefore, he can identify and understands your, your turmoil. This troubled king, this grief-stricken Christ, you need to understand this, but in order to understand this, I'll quote another, J.C. Ryle, who wrote this, let them, that is God's people, learn from their Lord's example that inward conflict of soul is not necessarily in itself a sinful thing. Obviously not in Jesus' case, the sinless one, amen? Too many, we believe from not understanding this point, go heavily all their days on their way to heaven. They refuse to take comfort in the gospel because they feel a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Well, let them mark the experience of their Lord and Master and lay aside their desponding fears. The believer may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace, end of quote. Take that and apply that, beloved. It's the tension in which we live, right? 
certainty, confident trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and yet turmoil here and here and again, now and again. Verse 28, and then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. <whistles> Wake up if you're sleeping. Now, the Father speaks audibly from heaven. This is the third time. The first time was at the Lord's baptism to inaugurate and authenticate his earthly ministry. The second time was the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transformed from the physical into glory before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. And what did they do? They went face down in fear. And then here, in the context of his death, that is, the looming cross, he validates the ministry of his son from beginning to end. He speaks from heaven, all the while amid man's confusion. Kind of like when Saul was transformed on the road to Damascus. They stood, we read, speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Because that day, the Lord was drawing one unto himself, the Apostle Paul. You know, the stubbornly blind, oftentimes, this is the scary part, are confirmed in their stubbornness. So the multitude hears a voice from heaven, they do not understand. That leads us to our next point, verse 31. This king behind the palms is a conquering king. By way of trouble, he conquers, okay? Trouble's here. His soul is troubled. He's facing the cross. He, he like a grain of wheat, will be thrown into the earth and die and, and sprout and bring forth much life. He conquers, verse 31. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. So, Jesus now moves from the suffering side of the cross to the judgment that it affects. First on the world. You know, although the world, quote, unquote, the world appeared to defeat the purposes and plan of God through his son, Jesus Christ, it was the world through the act of crucifying the Son of God, that comes to condemn itself. For all those who reject him, for all those who don't believe, they are already what? Condemned. They're already condemned. Every unbeliever is already under the condemnation of God. Only by Jesus Christ, Christ drawing them out of the category of condemnation does he take them and place them, sanctify them, set them apart into the category of no condemnation. Because he's the one who took the condemnation. That's why he was troubled. The next object of his judgment is Satan himself, otherwise known as the ruler or, or prince of the world. The, the casting out here, the casting out we read of Satan must be explained in context 
to the next verse, verse 32, that is the drawing of all men to Christ. By way of drawing all men to Christ by way and through the cross is the result of casting out the devil. You get this theologically? Do you see this? Do you see where we're going here? What did Satan have until Christ came and died on the cross? Dominion over the, over the nations. When Christ came and died and rose and ascended, Satan was cast out. Revelation 20, he was bound. He was chained from what? Having influence today? No, from deceiving the nations. Bound for a thousand years is metaphorical language for a long period of time. From the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Satan was cast out of heaven. You can read about it in Revelation 12. Cast out of heaven, sealed and bound. He's on Jesus' chain now, unable to deceive the nations. For before Christ came, he had a hold on the nations. Not every individual without exception, but as a whole nevertheless. Does he have that hold today? No, the gospel has spread to the four corners of the earth and it continues to go out with power. So we see that cosmic victory was achieved by his death on the cross. This is another picture of the already and the not yet. Think about the Apostles' Creed. We confess it every month. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father already. Okay, that's the already. But it's from there that he will come to judge the living and the dead, the not yet. So the cross and his resurrection was the D-Day, so to speak, and the V-Day is yet to come. Oscar Coleman coined that phrase during World War II. D-Day, decision day, the battle at Normandy, the decision was made. That day, the war was basically won, D-Day. But yet, the battle went on, battles went on for another 11 months, V-Day. So you have June 1944, D-Day, May 1945, V-Day. Christ came, conquered cosmically the devil and all of his demons at the cross. That's D-Day. When he comes back, that's V-Day. Until then, the battle goes on. Amen? been cast out through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's a conquering king, and he is finally an offensive king. Verse 34, the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say this son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? What they're saying is, no, 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 no. Our conception of the son of man is that he has everlasting dominion. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 9. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 4. We know it. We've grown up with this. We see this. And if it's the case, he must be lifted up, which means on a Roman cross, and he must die. How can this be? And essentially, what kind of son of man are you? So basically, they're saying a dying Savior 
does not fit our conception of a Messiah. He's an offense. So this, this mob failed to recall messianic passages of scripture like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, 7, that, that has to do with a suffering Messiah. You remember the Jews had a very rote understanding of the scriptures. But yet Jesus said that you are ignorant of the scriptures. In other words, these are like people in our day who have numerous verses memorized and they love to impress people. But most of the time they they don't know what the text means by what it says. They did not recognize which would have been the Old Testament, that is, and the connection to all the redemptive events happening in their time through this one, this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth. They missed it. So he didn't fit their framework as this son of man, you see. So the offense of Christ and the meaning of Scripture reveals always, it did then and it does now, how the apathetic professing quote-unquote believer is swiftly, they, they, they change their thoughts and their thinking about God when their ideals aren't met. You follow me? Am I making sense or am I being confusing? So many people work so very hard to ignore Christ all their lives. They do their own thing, they go through life, And then, when the wheels begin to fall off the wagon of their lives, they come running to the church, knocking on the door. So far, so good, amen? That's that's a great thing to do. And I hope that when people are buried out here, they'll come running to this church. However, many times, when things in their lives don't get put back together the way that they had hoped with Jesus as the fix-all, guess what? Out the door they go. They run away. No interest in Christ, not this Christ, no concern with regard to salvation and his redeeming work. The the, the only thing they were concerned about is having their little world put back together. And when it wasn't put back together, they washed their hands of this Jesus stuff. It's always been that way, friends. John chapter 2, at the outset of his ministry, verse 23, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. Okay, that is they had miraculous faith, not saving faith. There was no doubt Jesus was doing miracles. That was without question. But notice, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So when when he doesn't fit their framework of what a savior is to be or should be, a fixer, a healer, a a miracle-working genie, They want nothing to do with him. You know, you can have a built-in conception 
about the kind of Savior Jesus is meant to be to you and only to you. And eventually, he's going to greatly offend you. If you sit at a place that preaches the whole counsel of God. Because he will not fit your framework. And this fickle mob, hailing him king, are now saying, what kind of son of man are you? Lifted up? Crucified? A grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying? What a joke. Hail, king of the Jews. Wow. And did you notice? Did you notice? Jesus does not answer their objection. He does not address their question. Their haughty ignorance gives reason now for the Lord's very sharp, yet gentle, reply. Verse 35. So Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So he, he, he accuses them of closing their eyes to very light of the world. Who's the light of the world? He's the light of the world. Verse 36, <clears throat> while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. What did he do? He didn't answer their question. He left. He doesn't answer their objections. He doesn't even clear up their misunderstandings. He said, I'm the light and you need the light. Respond while you have the light. That is gospel light, my friends. Not gospel light, L-I-T-E. A watered-down message, gospel, L-I-G-H-T. He offended them. Essentially saying that that may be your conception of Messiah, that he doesn't die like this, but I'm not going to meet your specifications. I'm the light. You better respond quickly. There's urgency here, amen? There's urgency here. And that principle, my friends, holds true to this day. So he, he's very patient, he's very loving, but he says to the lingering, the, the indifferent, and, and the embittered, as there are many this day, look, I'm not going to answer all of the difficulties of life for you. I'm not going to do that. I'm not obligated to do that. I'm not going to answer all the questions you still have. I'm not going to solve all the mysteries. I'm the light of the world. Come to the light and you shall be saved. That's the issue. All of the dilemmas of this life that rack your brain, time for deliberation is over. Come to me, the light of the world. Believe now. And once you believe, you will comprehend more in time. Believe in the crucified glorified Savior, the King behind 
the palms. Believe now, lest this darkness overwhelm you. And the same warning goes out to this day, beloved. If you're fiddling around, messing around with this, Jesus, the light of the world, I bid you to repent and come to the light, lest you be overtaken in your current present darkness forevermore. Look what, look what happens. <clears throat> this isn't part of the sermon, but just look ahead, verse 37. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah 700 years before, which spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they what? They what? Could not. They would not. And then eventually, they could not. For the Lord, uh, through Isaiah, the Lord said, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Beware if that's you. Who is this king? The psalmist asks, who is this king? Well, he is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is the Christ. He is the king, the one who has come veiled in human flesh. He is the one who condescended from glory to empty himself, not of deity, but of the rights thereof. To take on human flesh, to die, to be lifted up, to be thrown into the ground, to be broken open in order to, 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 to create a great harvest. And here we are, recipients to this very day. Amen? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Lord, your Redeemer. The Lord, your Good Shepherd. The one who has died for you and come back from the grave. He reigns on high. He rules now in love for you with wisdom over your life. He's in control. He's preparing a place for you. Actually, he's already prepared a place for you by way of the cross. You already have a seat in heaven so that you might dwell with him and the Father, Holy Spirit, forever. That is the king behind the palms. And he is yours only in Christ. If you're not in Christ, I bid you come and see this Jesus. Look at him. And you shall inherit eternal life. Lord, we thank you for your word on this day that we celebrate your son's ascent in humility for his hour. The hour that has produced life in us 2,000 years later. We rejoice and we thank you. Help us to rejoice in it more and more every day and to want to see Jesus more and more every day. I pray this for myself, for my brothers and sisters here with me, and for the new life in Christ that you, according to grace, we hope will birth into those sitting among us or listening on some given date, unaware to us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.